everyone. How are you doing today? A little bit better than last week, huh? That extra hour of sleep made a difference, I think, for sure. Hey, I'm Pastor Joe. I just want to say welcome to you. Welcome back as we continue on in our series, Jesus is Greater Than. We're going to be studying this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this little church in Colossae about 2,000 years ago. And we would never even heard of this church if Paul hadn't written this letter. But in the letter, we see that the church is dealing with a number of problems, but to every problem in their lives and to every problem in our lives, we're going to see Paul giving this consistent message that Jesus is greater than. And that's why we're calling this series, Jesus is Greater Than. And to this morning, I just want to invite you as we bow our heads, we're going to pray to that Jesus who is greater than and ask him to come and be our teacher today. Jesus, we come before you today and we know that you were greater than when Paul wrote this letter and you are greater than today. And I pray, God, that whatever we are dealing with in our lives, that we will continue to see that you are greater than anything that we face. I pray that in our time together that you will illuminate the truth of your scripture, that you will speak to our hearts and allow us to see, God, what you have to say to us today. But more than just seeing and hearing it, God, I pray that you'll give us feet that will go and obey it in whatever you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've probably heard this sound before. Bzzz, tap, 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 tap. Bzzz, tap, 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 tap. I'm sitting in a room in our church that overlooks our parking lot a few weeks ago, and I'm trying to do a little bit of studying, and all I hear are the incessant, unsuccessful attempts of a housefly trying to make its way from inside the room, through the invisible glass window, out to freedom. But the result of that was just bzzz, tap, 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 bzzz, tap, tap, tap. It's annoying, isn't it? Every buzz was, was those wings flapping a little bit more desperately trying to get out. And every tap was yet another unsuccessful attempt to try to get to freedom that was beyond that glass. But all that little fly was really doing was irritating me. So I picked up my, I mean my book and, and I was going to uh, end its misery and more importantly my misery. And in the middle of my backswing though, I noticed something and I stopped. On the top of the window sash beneath where the fly was flying were about a dozen other dead flies. A dozen tiny creatures that had spent the final moments of their lives in an unsuccessful attempt to break through a barrier that maybe they didn't realize was even there. But they certainly didn't realize they couldn't overcome it. And in that moment, I, I had a tender thought. It wasn't whether I was about to make a little fly orphan family. I'm not that tender. But my thought was this, what must, be, what must it be like to live a life blocked off from freedom by a barrier, condemned to death because of it, and maybe you don't even realize it's there? Well, this morning in our time back in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're going to see that Paul tells us that, whether we realize it or not, we all know what that experience is like in our lives when it comes to our spiritual walk with God. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to pull out your Bible. You can find a Bible nearby you. And just so you know, if you're ever visiting or if you have someone else with you, if you don't own a Bible, we have a bunch of Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Feel free to take one home. We have more in stock and we will replace it. That is our gift to you. If you want to grab a Bible, pull up it on your mobile device. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 and we're going to start out in verse 21. Today we're really going to just go through two verses in this passage. But we're going to see there's so much here that God wants to teach us. And as you make your way there, Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul writes this, 
once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. He uses this word alienated. And the word alien can conjure up a lot of images in our heads. I grew up in the 80s, so I think of E.T. or extraterrestrial. And I guess you could imagine being alienated could be like being beamed up to a spaceship and placed inside a stainless steel mechanism and being converted into some kind of space creature, being alienated. Or there's a hot button word right now in our culture, illegal alien. And so in a sense, alien can refer to someone or something that is not from here, it's from somewhere else and doesn't quite belong. But in this case, Paul is using the word alien in a different way. See, alienated can mean a relational estrangement. It's not so much being from somewhere that you don't belong, but you can be alienated or estranged from someone because of some offense or some issue between you and them. And, and as a human being, you have, you have felt this feeling of estrangement before, haven't you? Now, believe it or not, uh, I, I am married. You might have a hard time believing that. But what it might be even harder to believe is that, yes, my wife and I will sometimes get in little tiffs. Even a pastor's uh, family sometimes has little problems. And so we do this, what I call the morning dance sometimes in the kitchen. If we have a tiff and there's a little bit of an estrangement, we're both in the kitchen and we're both in each other's way trying to get ready. And and we're not talking. So we're just bumping into each other, but we're not saying anything. And it's that feeling of estrangement. You felt that before in a relationship, haven't you? Or maybe it's when your phone dings, and it's that person that you're just not talking to. Maybe that person you broke up with. And and you feel that little bit of disappointment when you realize it's not from them. And and you remember there's there's an estrangement. Or or it could be at family dinner, and there's an empty seat. And and that was the seat of the family member who, who used to be there all the time. But now there was that big blow up. And they don't come around anymore. Paul's saying that we have this feeling of estrangement sometimes between human beings. But in a relationship with God, we also have an estrangement. He's saying that there's this, there's this blockage, there's this barrier between us and God. And in this case, it's caused by our evil behavior. Isaiah, in chapter 59, describes this barrier this way. Isaiah puts it this way. He says, but your iniquities or your evil behavior have built barriers between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, Isaiah is saying that we all, we all know what that feeling is like, that estrangement in our relationship with God. He's saying that we've built barriers, or we you know what, we've built a wall between us and God because of our evil behavior, our sin. Now you might say, okay, how does my sin build a barrier, or build a wall between God and I? Well, here's what you need to know about God. God is holy. He is all good, all pure. He is perfect and completely righteous. It's his nature. It's who he is. He can't change it any more than you and I can change our DNA. In the words of Lady Gaga, he was born that way, or probably more doctrinally correct, he has eternally existed that way. And because of that nature, he can't have anything that is impure or unholy in his presence. And that that would be us and our sin and our evil behavior. And so our sin and our behavior, it causes a wall between our unholiness and God's holiness. It messes up the whole relationship. Think, Think about it this way. I want you to imagine your favorite restaurant. Since this is my example, I'm going to use an Italian restaurant. 
And I want you to imagine you go to that Italian restaurant and you've been looking forward to all week and you're finally there. It's Friday night and after a long patient wait, out comes a big plate with a thick piece of chicken parmesan on it. It's smothered in mozzarella cheese. There's a big side of spaghetti and it's all covered in steaming marinara sauce. And you, you are so excited. You've been waiting for it. You even passed on the bread because you knew it would fill you up. And you wanted to save your carbs for the spaghetti. And you're so excited. You tuck your napkin into your, your shirt. You get out your knife and your fork. And you, you cut into that first piece. And you lift that bite to your mouth. And just as you're about to take it in, you notice a big, long piece of human hair <laughs> baked right into the cheese. Now, at this point, you might be like me thinking, I'm going for it anyhow. <laughs> but what do you really do? You put it down, you call the waiter over and say, I- I'm sorry, there's a hair here. This single piece of hair has made the whole plate unedible. And, and that's how it works with God. You see, one contaminant contaminates the whole relationship. One sin builds a wall between us and God. One lie, one sexually immoral evening, one selfish act, one hateful word. That's all it takes to alienate us from God and to build the wall. But let's not kid ourselves, right? It's not just one sin, is it? David in Psalm chapter 40 describes the human condition this way. I'm going to read this verse. I'm going to ask you, have you ever felt this way? He says this. He says, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. He's saying it's not just one sin in our lives, is it? it? It's a lot of sins. In other words, David is saying it's more than the hairs on my head. Or he's saying we've taken the plate of our lives We've set them on our laps and we've gotten a haircut. And now it's just filled with hair. It's completely unedible. It's all messed up. And the sin in our lives has brick by brick built a wall between us and God. Paul continues on in in Colossians chapter 1. He says that once you were alienated and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You're enemies in your minds. What does that mean? Well, the mind is the seed of what we believe, isn't it? We process information in the mind. Now, there's two categories of things we can believe. Truth and falsehood. Or true things and lies. So when he says your enemies in your minds, it it means that your enemies because of what you believe about your evil behavior. Or your enemies because of what you believe about the wall. See, there there are things that people believe about the wall that's between them and God. The the first thing is this. The first lie that that people believe is, well, I'm just not that sinful, really. I'm not that sinful. In other words, we we can stand in front of our wall and we can put it in a place where we can't see it. I can't see the wall right now, so how could it be there? I can move my hands. I don't feel any wall. There's no wall. And we tell ourselves that, well, you know what? Really, you might be sinful, but I'm I'm not that sinful. We pretend it isn't there. People do a number of things to to do this in their lives. Rationalization is one of them. 
People will say things like, oh, you Christians talk about this, this wall and, and, and going to hell. But really, how can a good God send someone to hell just for, just for some little bit of sin? Or you might say, well, isn't sin just come some kind of fabrication of the powerful to oppress the weak for centuries and centuries and centuries? It's like if we can just come up with a good enough argument, we could just ignore the fact that there's a wall behind us. Other people will, will do some comparisons. Maybe you have an inkling. I probably have some sin in my life, but you know what? Let's look at somebody else's wall. Look at that guy's wall. You know, he's, he's already got two sixes painted on his wall, and he's in the middle of the painting the third one. He's terrible. I can't be that bad. This lie sounds like, I know I'm not perfect, but... You know, I, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm not posting ra- racist comments on social media. I, I, I know I'm not po- perfect, but I, I'm not looting stores. I, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm not in a same-sex relationship. At the root of this lie that I'm just not that sinful is Pride. And pride says, if, if, if I can just convince myself that I'm better than I really am, I will ignore the wall behind me. Th- there was a philosopher, you might have heard of him, he was German, his name is Friedrich Nietzsche, and he said this really famous thing. He said, God is dead, we have killed him. And, and, in other words, he said, if we can just convince ourselves that there's, there's no God behind any wall, then there's no sin. And then there will be a job opening, God of my life, and I'll just step in and pridefully take the place. Because after all, I'm just not that sinful. There's another lie that that people will tell themselves. This lie is, well, I'm way too sinful. Whereas the first lie is rooted in pride, this lie is rooted in shame. Instead of looking away from the wall, this lie, all it can see is the wall. It stands so close to the wall that you're just completely obsessed with the sin in your life. All you can see is that big failure, that big mistake. And even when you turn to any side or the other, the wall still takes up most of your vision. This lie says, I have so much sin in my life, I am way too bad to ever dream of a life when that sin doesn't color the entire way that I see myself and the world around me. This, this lie can show up with a number of different statements in your mind. Have you ever heard any of these statements? The first one kind of sounds like, I will always be the. I'm, a, I'm always going to be the dad who gambled away his kid's college savings. I'm always going to be the girl who sleeps with guys so, so, so she can feel good about herself. I'm always going to be the woman who got fired for stealing. I'm always going to be the son who couldn't please his father. I'm always going to be the spouse who cheated. I'm, I'm always going to be. And your whole identity and your whole future gets defined by the wall. And another part of that is maybe you hear this voice in your mind is, well, if anybody knew, if anybody knew that even though I'm smiling on Sunday morning, I I spent Saturday night looking at porn, they would just be disgusted by me. If, If anybody knew what I did when I was on that business trip, or if anybody knew what I did when I was serving in that war, they they would hate me. If anybody knew that I have to take pills just to get through my day, you know, they, they would be ashamed of my weakness. If anybody knew, if anybody knew. Are there any of those shame lies that are in, in your mind, that you hear them throughout your day? You feel like you've done something so bad, something so awful, that the rest of your life you're going to be just staring at a wall. 
And Paul says that you are enemies in your mind because all day, maybe even hour by hour, your mind just builds a prosecuting case against you and presents evidence and declares a verdict and issues the sentence of perpetual shame. The third lie is this. I can defeat sin. This lie doesn't ignore the wall. This lie isn't obsessed and just staring at the wall. This lie says, you know what? Yep, there's a wall, but I've got a game plan. You know, surely, surely I can overcome this wall. So you build some kind of system in your mind. And maybe the system works a little bit like a ladder where you think, I'm going to put a ladder beside this wall. And every time I do something good, it's like climbing another rung of the ladder. I'm at church at 8 a.m. on a Sunday. On my day off, that's got to count for at least one rung, maybe two. I'm going to give some money to a charity. I'm going to help the neighbor lady cut her grass. I'm going to hold a door. And you kind of build a system of good things. And you realize you don't want to make the wall any bigger, so i got to cut back on some bad things. You know, I'm not going to drink too much except on Friday nights when I don't get to go to work the next day. You know, I, I'm going to spend a little bit less. You know, I, I need to cut back on some of my language. And in your mind, you kind of build this system of religious performance. And that's what we would call it. Religious performance. I'm going to do things that please God and try to avoid things that don't please Him. So that I can overcome the wall by myself. This was the problem of the church at Colossae. They were pagans. And sometimes people think pagans means God less. That's an atheist. Pagans actually means God full or many gods. And they had all kinds of gods in their lives. Local gods and Roman gods and family gods and more. And, and they believed that these gods had very significant influence in what happened in their lives. If, if they're animals didn't reproduce, or if their crops didn't grow, if their children weren't healthy, or if disease came, or if it didn't rain, they believed that the gods influenced that. So instead of just having one wall between them and one god, they had many walls between them and many gods, and they spent all of their time trying to make sure that the gods were happy, trying to overcome walls with religious sacrifice, prayers, doing the right religious things tough to find somebody today who believes in many gods. We're usually just trying to find somebody who believes in just one God. But the system works the same. It's the lie that I can overcome the wall with my effort. I can be good enough to please God. I want to put an image uh, on the screen for you. This is a German phrase. Arbeit mach Bray. Leave the image up just for a second. In German, that statement means work will set you free. Or work will give you freedom. Work, effort will overcome the wall. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before, but behind it are some walls. And those walls represent a place that is the complete opposite of freedom. See, that is the wording over the gate that entered into the Nazi concentration camp of Auschwitz in Poland. And it's almost unimaginable to, to think it. It's unfathomable, really. But 1.1 million people passed underneath that horrendous lie, work will set you free, 
inside those walls of condemnation where they face their death. And what grieves my heart as well is that many of us live our lives underneath that same lie. In a relationship with God, work's going to set me free. If I just work hard enough, I can escape the punishment. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. In kind of a tragic irony, that statement, Arbeit macht frei, is a, it's a play on words for another statement in German. Wahrheit macht frei, which means truth will set you free. If you think you've heard that before, you probably have. Those were the words of Jesus in John chapter 8. So what is the truth about these lies? What is the truth of Scripture about these lies? Well, friends, the truth is not very good news. See, to the lie of, I am not that sinful, Paul wrote to another church, the church of Rome, these words. He says, guys, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away from the wall, from God. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. He's saying, don't stand in front of your wall and look around and try to find someone who's worse than you. He says, do this. Stand in front of your wall and try to find someone who is the best person that you know. And here's a hint. It's not you. And that person who's the most holy, most righteous, the best person you know, they're still not good enough. They still have a wall of separation. You know, to the lie that I can defeat sin. The prophet Isaiah, talking many years before Jesus, says, this is a centuries-old problem. This is a millennial. You know, this is as long as people have been around problem. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah tells us, he says, this is the problem. All of us have become like one who is unclean, one who has a wall, and all of our righteous acts, all of our efforts to defeat the wall on our own, are like filthy rags. And, and this is one of those places where Bible translators really tame down Scripture because they're like, I don't know how someone's going to read this in a church service, church service with children. So let's use a, a tamed word. But the word for filthy, it, it, it's the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. And the rags are what is used to absorb it. And Isaiah isn't saying that we shouldn't try to do righteous things. What he's saying is, when we try to do righteous things to scale this wall and to prove our worthiness to God, well, that's like me inviting you over to dinner and giving you a maxi pad as a napkin. That's what the scripture says. So in light of this, this lie in the middle, it can start to seem more believable, can't it? But once we go back to our passage in Colossians, we can find a glimmer of hope. Colossians 1.21, one more time. Paul writes again, once you were alienated from God. See, in order for there to be a, a once, there has to be a now. Once is past tense. He said, once you were alienated, once you were defined by shame, once you didn't even realize how much sin you had in your life, once you were trying so hard on your own to defeat the sin and you were unsuccessful, once you were just that fly that was tapping on the wall and couldn't get through and you, you didn't realize if it was ultimately leading to death, that was once. But in order for there to be a once, there has to be a now. 
And so he continues in verse 22. And here comes the good news. But now he has. Once you were, but now he has. Reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Friends, this is the truth. This is the truth that will set you free. This is the good news. Is that once you were alienated because of your wall, but Jesus came into this world and gave his physical body to reconcile you to God. This is what Jesus did. He said, I am going to... I'm going to overcome your wall. We all awake now? Okay. Jesus is greater than the wall in your life. And Jesus brings the truth to your wall. He says, you believe the lie that you're not that sinful? That you're good enough? Let me tell you, I'm the only one who's good enough. Jesus said, I'm the only one who has lived a life worthy. I think it's fascinating that one of Jesus' best friends, Peter, hung out with Jesus every day during his ministry. Watched Jesus' reaction to every single thing. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter says, he committed no sin. Do you have anybody in your life who hangs out with you every day who could ever say about you that you committed no sin? But Peter says, Jesus is perfect. He's the one that it is true about that he is good enough. And to the lie that I have too much shame, I have too much sin, I could never be forgiven. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take all of your shame on me. I'm going to take the shame of rejection, the shame of mockery, the shame of nakedness, the shame of sin. And I'm going to take your sin and your shame and I'm going to put it on me. And to the lie that I can defeat sin, that I can overcome it on my own, Jesus said, no, you can't because it takes a perfect sacrifice to, to reconcile you to God. But I will, I will be that perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus said, your story was once you were alienated. And my story is, I have a perfect relationship with God. But what I want to do is I want to swap stories with you. I want to swap stories. I want you to have my story. I want you to have my perfect relationship with God. And I'm going I'm to take your alienation on me. I tell you what, let's do this. You put all of your sin on me on the cross. You just transfer the burden of your wall to me, and I'm going to transfer over to you my relationship. I'll take your alienation. That's why when Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was him bearing our alienation, our break with God. And when he said, it is finished, that was him saying, my work is done. I have done what you can't, and I will give you the relationship with God that I have. In other words, he was saying, I will be greater than your wall because Jesus is greater than the wall and he proved it on the cross. So my question to you today is, do you have a wall of sin between you and God? Have you ever accepted the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross? He wants your story to be once I was alienated. But if that's your story today, you have to make the choice to allow him to change that. It's a choice that we make. The work is done, but we have to accept it. You see, you're, you're not going to have a reconciled relationship with God just because you came to church. We're really glad you're here, but that's, that's not really what God's looking for. 
You're not going to have a reconciled relationship with God or that relationship because you felt something during worship. You won't have it just because, well, you know, I put in enough time. Or just because you've tried hard to become a good person. The only way to have the relationship that Jesus wants you to have with him and with his father is by turning to him in your life and saying, Jesus, forgive my sins. I accept the work that you've done. I believe in it, and I'm going to choose to follow you with my life. Jesus wants your story to be, once I was alienated because of my wall, but now I'm reconciled because of Jesus' work on the cross. And today, I want to give you the opportunity to make that choice. Today, I want to give you the chance to say, today was the last day of once I was, and the first day of but he has in my life. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads where you're at. In a moment, Pastor Bob is going to come out and he's going to lead us in communion. And we're going to celebrate together Jesus' bodily sacrifice on the cross for us. But before we do that, I just want to ask you, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, have you ever made that choice in your life? Have you ever had the moment in your life where you said, I am going to ask Jesus to remove the wall to forgive me of my sins, and I'm going to give my life to him. If you want to do that today, if you've never done that before, I don't invite you to do it. I want to lead you in a prayer. Just to be clear, the prayer isn't magical, but it just represents what's going on in your heart and the choice that you want to make. So if that's you, if you want to give your life to Jesus, just quietly, you can mouth the words, you can say them internally. Repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I confess that I've lived my life with a wall of sin between me and God. I don't want to live with that wall there anymore. I believe in your work on the cross and I want to ask your forgiveness of my sin. Please give me the relationship with God that you made possible on the cross. From this day forward, I choose to follow you with my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you made that decision. Welcome to the family of God. The most the important decision you'll ever make. In fact, if you if you made that decision, I, I'd, I'd ask you to, to text yes to Christ to 94000. And here's the reason why. So that we can pray for you and that we can send you some, some information that will help you take the next steps in your journey with Jesus. As Joe said, we're going to be celebrating communion this morning. Before we do that, I want us to take just a, just a couple of moments to, to ponder, to think about the price that Jesus paid for us. And then we're going to spend a few moments praying silently, and then we'll take communion together. During the time leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, sort of throughout his trial, he, he went through so much for us. He, he was made fun of and mocked. We, we know he was spat upon. He was, he was punched several times. Scripture also tells us that he was scourged. That process is, 
it's hard to even talk about because it's so horrible, right? It's, it's, it's where a person is whipped across their back with a, a whip that is, has leather strips and bone and metal is tied into a, these strips. And it's really designed to, to take the flesh, to remove flesh from a person's body. Many people who received the, the scourging that Jesus received died because of it. The pain would have been really indescribable. Jesus chose to take that beating, that scourging, for you, for me. We also know that then he was finally crucified. They took nails probably six or seven inches long, drove them into his hands and into his feet. Again, that process of of pain is something that I I can't imagine. We can't comprehend. Really, crucifixion was designed to, to make death as painful and as prolonged as possible. Amazing physical pain. And, and yet, in the midst of that physical pain, Jesus experienced other pain as well. And Joe mentioned this. Be- because Jesus bore our sin, Scripture tells us, in several places. In fact, in Isaiah, it says this. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then in 1 Peter, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And the fact that Jesus bore our sins, as Joe said, meant that for the first time ever, Jesus and God the Father, there was a separation there. And that's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Matthew 27? That pain would have been Something that we can never imagine. That separation. And then even even more than that separation, and as Joe said, there had to be that separation because God the Father cannot have fellowship with sin. Jesus at that moment was bearing our sin. But more than the separation comes God's wrath. Jesus felt that as well. In Romans 3, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. There's a, another translation, the New American Standard Translation, uses the word propitiation. And that's an important word because here's the meaning of that word. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. That means that God the Father's wrath was poured out in its entirety, all its fury, on Jesus. The the wrath of God was emptied upon him, finally, until it was all gone. That's what Jesus did for us. He took the wrath that we deserve. God's wrath. His work on the cross removed that wrath from us. Those of us that have accepted Christ no longer have to face that wrath. He removed the wall on the cross. For us. And I do want to give us a couple of moments this morning before communion because it's a, it's a great time for us to stop for a moment and consider our relationship with the Lord. It may be that there's sin in your life that God is even now convicting you of that you want to confess to Him and ask forgiveness. It may be that there's a, there's a, a, a an area of your life that you want to more fully surrender to him or you want to just yourself fully surrender yourself to him. It's a great opportunity to do that. Certainly an opportunity to ponder what 
price he paid for you and for me and to thank him that he paid that price. So I want to give you a few moments to just bow your heads and pray silently however God leads during this time as we prepare ourselves for communion. thank you that you paid our debt you paid our penalty you took all of God's wrath that was meant for us meant for me we give you praise and we pray this prayer in your name Jesus the name that has set us free amen the only re requirement to take communion here at CAC is that you've accepted Christ as your Savior. If that happened 70 years ago or seven minutes ago when Joe gave you the opportunity, you're welcome to participate with us. I want to just take a moment and give you some instruction first, so, so don't yet do what I'm about to tell you. We're going to do that together. But you'll notice uh, when you look at this cup that there are two pieces of plastic, very thin layers. If you take the first one back, you'll see a wafer. At the, at the time when I tell you, you're just going to take that wafer and eat it. And then when you're ready, peel back that second piece of plastic and be able to take the juice together. As we do this, let's remember the price that Jesus paid for us and the victory he won for us. Let's do this together. Finally, this morning, we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the victory that Jesus has won for us. We know that on the third day, he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And because of that, we have a relationship with the King of Kings, the God of the universe. He calls us his children. We can call him Daddy. Scripture says we were in the domain of darkness, but now we are in the kingdom of Jesus. Praise God for that. We've been set free. Our chains are gone. And so would you stand this morning if you're able, and let's just, in our final moments, praise God for what he's done. He's won the victory for us. How great the cat.